year, church. Happy New Year. Thank you. Curtis Jenkins is a normal guy. He drives a bus for the Richardson Independent School District, which is kind of a suburb of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. As a bus driver, of course, he is not getting rich. But he did a kind of crazy thing right before Christmas, and you might have seen it on the news. What a normal thing. It was this great act of generosity. Every student from Lake Highlands Elementary School that rides his bus the day before Christmas break, all 70 students received a present from their bus driver, Jenkins. It all started this way. He told his wife he wanted to do a gift exchange for his students. And Shanika, his wife, said, well, honey, probably some of your students can't afford to do that. Well, that kind of got his mind rolling in a different direction. So he decided that he would buy gifts for each of his students. He even asked them what they would like Santa to bring to them. His wife said this. There was absolutely no hesitation. He took a little bit out of each paycheck for months so that he could do this. So on the day before Christmas break, there were puzzles, and there were games, and there were small electronics, and even a bicycle, each marked for a specific kid on his bus. He said, seeing the smiles on their faces was greater than anything that I could have ever done with that money. He went on to recall his own Christmas, and he said, you know... When I was growing up, I grew up with my aunt. We didn't have any money. He said for Christmas, she would buy a package of socks. Then she would take the package apart and individually wrap each of us one pair of socks. But he said when you had holes in your socks, you were always grateful. You know what Jenkins did was make those kids feel loved and valued. Who knew that Santa Claus drove a school bus? You know, there are lots of those kind of stories of generosity this time of year. You know, you hear about, you know, somewhere a Salvation Army kettle. Somebody drops a large amount of money in. You hear about these secret Santas that go to Walmart and pay off every single layaway. And then there's organizations like Toys for Tots and there's the shoeboxes for Christmas that we do here, just all these wonderful stories of generosity that happen this time of year. When I saw the story about Mr. Jenkins on the nightly news, it made me ask myself a question. Am I doing enough? And then that question kind of went into, as a pastor of this church, are we doing enough. And then I want to ask you, are you doing enough? You told me that
is a loaf of uh, moldy bread. It's kind of a problem. The problem is my family didn't consume it fast enough. Now it's just kind of gross. It's kind of set for too long. It's not good to anyone. Today we're starting this new series we're calling Be Committed. And we're going to be talking about some of the tenets of our mission statement here, which is the mission statement is connecting people to Jesus and each other. And then one of the tenets is generosity. One of the ways that we connect people to Jesus is living a life of generosity. Well, James is going to talk to us in James chapter 5 about generosity. And just to kind of paraphrase this morning and put it in our vernacular, he's going to say, live generously because what you are holding is moldy. Can you say that with me? Live generously because what you are holding is moldy. And it's not good for anybody or for anything. So this is how James begins. He's the brother of Jesus. He pastors a church in the Jerusalem area. area. He writes this very practical book in the early 50s A.D., and he kind of gives some instructions to the people that are living there and to us. And he begins in verse 1 of chapter 5, and he says this. Now listen, you rich people. Now I know some of you, as soon as I said that, you're like, rich people. Wow. Pastor's not going to be talking to me this morning. I'm not rich. I get to take the first Sunday of the year off as far as what the pastor has to say. Because I am not rich. And some of you are probably even thinking in your head right now, I wonder who is rich in this room. How much money do you have to be to be called rich anyway? I just want to remind you this morning, most of us are a lot richer than we think we are. And here's why we don't think we're rich. It's because we don't feel rich. Maybe the only time you ever felt rich was maybe like the first time you ever received like your first paycheck from like your first real job. And you know, you didn't kind of have any responsibilities or bills back then. So, you, you know, maybe you got that first paycheck. I remember I was, uh, one of the jobs I had in high school is I worked at a desk, as a desk clerk at a Best Western Motel. And I think minimum wage back then was, I don't know, two twenty-five an hour or something, something like that. And uh, I had to work a bunch of overtime one week, a couple weeks there, because somebody was sick. And I got a check. The take-home part of the check was like $240. And I remember looking at that number and thinking, how in the world will I ever spend that much money? <laughs> That was in the late 70s into a high school student. That was a lot of money. I can remember Renee and I had an experience together kind of similar to that. She had been in nursing school. We had three kids, and she was working at Food Line, and I was working at that camp that didn't pay much. And, and uh, she got out of school, and she uh, got that first job, and then she got her first nursing check. And I remember looking at that check compared to the Food Line checks and thinking, this changes everything. This is going to change our life. 
And we got to go, it was right before Christmas that she got that first check. And we got to go, we had three kids at the time. And uh, just right before Christmas, we got to go over to Toys R Us and just fill up a basket full of toys. That was really cool because we never got to do anything like that for our kids before. Those might have been the only times that I ever felt rich. And maybe you have a, a similar experience to that. So why don't we feel rich? Well, I think it's because a lot of people live with no financial margins. You know, their income is here and they bump their expenses right up to the income or sometimes over their income. So there's no peace. There's always pressures and there's always stress. So you don't feel rich when you're living a life like that. And yet, to most of the world, that kind of pressure and that kind of stress, it makes no sense. And here's another reason I don't feel, think we don't feel rich. We get caught up in this comparison game. And we look at the Joneses, and we look at the Smiths, and we know what kind of house they live in, and what kind of cars they drive, and what kind of clothes they wear. And then we go on to Facebook, and we see the vacations that they take. And we see what they got for Christmas. Honey, did you see what she got for Christmas? Come look at this picture. And then we go on Instagram. And even their kids look better than our kids. <laughs> and we see all these crazy places and things they get to do. And we think, my life is just yucky. Why don't I get to do more? Why don't I have more? Why can't I have newer, shinier, better? And without meaning to, we kind of fall into this comparison trap. There's something I want you to remember. By international standards, we are rich. I've shared statistics with you before, but here's a new one along these lines. If your household income is over $33,000, you are in the 1% club of all the wage earners in the world. If your family makes more than $33,000, you are in the top 1% of all the age earners in the entire world. We don't get that excited about that, do we? I mean, how many of you go up to your wife? Hey, honey, guess what? We are in the top 1% in the entire world for how much money we make. not to make you feel guilty. The goal is to make you feel responsible. There are millions, billions of people in this world who think that you are rich. That ought to cause us to pause and think. So back to James. Just to give you a little bit of background, in the first century, the pagans, Jewish Christians, Jews in general, there was this thought process that if you were rich, that meant you had God's favor on your life. And consequently, if you were poor or you were sick, you didn't have God's favor upon your life. 
So there's this idea that the more you had, the wealthier you were, the more God loved you. And the poorer, the sicker you were, the more it was like your own fault. Somebody in your family has done something wrong. And this was kind of a leftover idea from the Old Testament. But when you get to the New Testament, it, it kind of changes. And the idea in the New Testament is rich people aren't more loved. Rich people are more responsible. They are more accountable. They are expected to do more, to love more, because they have more opportunity. So you can just hear it as James kind of leans into his audience. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Wait a minute. It's kind of a shocker. I mean, misery's come upon you? Don't rich people usually have it pretty good? Aren't they usually the ones with the most secure future? I mean, rich people never worry about money, right? They never worry about their future, right? Yeah, we all know that's a joke, right? James was smart. He knew that the more money you have, the more you tend to worry. Because rich people make the same mistake that almost everybody makes. In fact, it may even be an indicator that you're rich. It's the mistake of putting our hope in what we have rather than in the one who provides. That's something poor people don't do. Because they don't have anything. They don't have anything to put their trust in. But most people, as soon as they begin to accumulate and gather stuff, their trust tends to migrate from God to their stuff and their portfolios and their jobs and things like that. It just seems to be this natural thing. The trust goes from God to our stuff. And when we're like that, there's never going to be enough. And you kind of play that what-if game all the time. What if the stock market keeps going down? What happens to my retirement? What if I lose my job? What if there's a serious illness in our family? What if my husband leaves me? What if my wife leaves me? What if? What if? What if? And without meaning to, our trust is moving away from God to our stuff. And it migrates from the one who has it all and gives us our stuff and statistics back this up, the more we have, the tighter we tend to hold on to it. So James goes, hey, you rich people, your wealth, he goes into verse 2, has rotted, and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Since you have so many clothes, you can't even wear them all. you got a closet full of shoes, you can't even wear them all. The moss and the bugs are eating holes in your, in your clothes. He said your silver and your gold is becoming tarnished and it's becoming chipped and decayed. And it's not even going to be worth as much as it once was. And his point, kind of like that loaf of bread I was talking about, he says you're holding on to it, but it's not doing anything for anyone. I bet you've had an experience similar to this. 
over the Christmas holidays, I've been doing some kind of reorganizing stuff around the clock, around the house, specifically one of the closets. And uh, you know, every house kind of has that drawer where like the weird stuff gets into. You know what I'm talking about? Probably most houses, there's one in the kitchen. And then I bet a lot of guys are like me. You have a drawer like that too. And it's probably, in my case, and I bet yours do, it's your top dresser drawer. And it's just crazy the stuff that ends up in that drawer, am I right? I mean, like nuts and bolts that were in your pocket and you didn't want to run back out to the garage to put them back where they go, so you throw them in that drawer and they just stay there forever. Maybe a, an old baseball playing card, an old watch, or things that you take away from your kids, right? Like when they're really little, you're scooping up the marbles so they don't swallow them. And then as they get older, you take away pocket knives and then firecrackers and then the 9 millimeter pistol. <laughs> I'm joking about the last one, but not the first one. And, you know, phone chargers. How many of you have a phone charger in a drawer somewhere that you don't have the phone for anymore? Yeah, like, well, it's like almost everybody has one of those. Why do we keep those? You know they're not going to start making a phone that you can use that for anymore because then they can't sell you a new one, right? But we all have those, which brings me to what I found in the drawer. It's a phone that looks something like this. Yeah, the LG flip phone from like, I don't know, 2002, 2003, something like that. It's in my drawer. And weren't we cool back then? Just push your button, click, then pop up. We were either cool or we were just easily amused, I don't know. our 
our lives. He believes that not just because of what he was taught or what he happened to read, but because of who his brother was. Because he had had conversations with his brother, Jesus, who he knew had died. He knew where they buried him. He knew that he rose from the dead. And after that, he had conversations with him. And in some time in his life, James became a believer. He was actually persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ and for his understanding that Jesus died for the sins of everybody, rose from the grave, and that we can have eternal life if we believe in that and ask for forgiveness. James was prosecuted for that and persecuted. And he continues on as he talks about that in verse 3. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. The implication is time is short. Why would you hoard when time is short? I think that's a good question for all of us. Why would we hoard? Why do we act as if we're going to live forever? Because there's something we know. Most of us are going to run out of time before we run out of stuff. Most of us are going to run out of time before we run out of money. Have you ever had to clean out a parent's house after they passed away? Or maybe after you moved somebody to a nursing home? Or maybe they downsized? Or maybe it was a grandparent? And you had to go in there and there's just all this stuff. And there's more clothes than a person could ever wear. More furniture than somebody could ever sit in. More space than somebody could ever use. And you just walk in that house and, and you're responsible for cleaning up this house for a person that's no longer in this life. And you walk in, you look around. What? all this stuff. There's nothing wrong with the stuff. And it's stuff perhaps that had lots of meaning to whoever lived there. It doesn't have any meaning to you. Maybe you and your siblings or you and your friends, you're trying to figure out what are we going to do with all this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. What do you do with it? My brothers and I had that experience last April. It wasn't so much the house, because there's still somebody living in it, but the storage buildings, garage-like structures around my dad's house that we had to go through. There's just all this stuff. It's like, what do you do with it? I mean, there were some things that we wanted, but there was lots of stuff that, that meant so much to our, to our parents that it just doesn't have that meaning for my brothers and I. One of the things that we found that were all boxed up, my mom had a, she loved dogs, and we always had a dog or two around the house. And through the years, she had every dog that she ever had, she took a picture and then had it put on a plate. I'm sure you've seen that kind of stuff, plates with pictures on them. And then she just hung them in the living room. So I don't know how many of them there were. There were a bunch of them, because I mean, it was a lot of years. I mean, my mom loved dogs all her life, and she somehow found pictures of dogs that she had when she was a kid and stuff. Well, I guess my dad, after she passed away, had boxed them all up because they were all out in one of these storage buildings and prices were like $30 a plate. And there's all these plates. Nothing wrong with these plates. I don't want them. My brothers didn't want them. What 
can do with all that stuff. That's what James is talking about. You hoard all this stuff in, in what? Wouldn't it be neat? I think about this, and I know it's, it's not really possible for lots of people. But wouldn't it be intriguing if you could just, like, when you die, your stuff, everything's already been taken care of? And, like, all your stuff is already gone? Your inheritance is taken care of? Maybe you've already given it to your kids? I don't know, maybe your kids are sorry, you're like, I'm spinning on myself, whatever. <laughs> but, it, but it's already done. You've taken that last breath, and everything that you owed is already in circulation to help somebody else. Would it kind of be fascinating if, you know, you've gotten all this stuff that had to happen after you passed away? All this stuff that maybe sometimes we hold on to too tightly? There's something to maybe give you a little extra motivation. One day, our kids are going to tell a story about our stuff, about your stuff. I heard one guy say it like this. What we do now will determine the story they tell and the example they see. James is like, you're holding on to stuff. And some of the things you are holding on to are actually losing value. I thought you were a rich person. I thought you were smart. I thought you were all about increasing the value of your stuff. But you're holding on to this stuff so long that it's actually decreasing and losing value. And eventually this stuff is going to be a testimony <coughs> against you. And he goes into verse 4 and he starts out with the word, look. It's like he's saying, listen to me. Pay attention here. And then he goes on, he says, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. He begins to address these wealthy landowners and merchants because back then they were really the only ones that had money. And there was a real tendency among these employers, these landowners and these wealthy people not to pay their employees what they should be paid. In other words, they would agree upon a wage and the day would come to, to collect their paycheck, so to speak, and these, these wealthy landowners and merchants would just swindle them out of it. Oh, well, I gotta take out for this, I gotta take out for that, and this and that. And they wouldn't pay these workers the agreed upon wage. And there really wasn't much these employees could do about it. There was no labor board. They couldn't go hire an, an attorney. They were just kind of at the mercy of their employers. <laughs> you know, when Renee and I were uh, younger, we rented a house in East Ridge, and we had an experience very similar to this. We were renting a house. I was in seminary, and uh, we moved into this house, and we lived there five years, and we took great care of that house. And nobody would argue that when we moved out of that house, it was better than when we moved into it. Took great care of it, made some improvements and stuff at our own expense. And uh, so we moved out because we had bought a house in Ringgold. And so moved all our stuff out and then went back into the house and just cleaned it. It was spick and span when we got done with it. So finally the time came for the, the landlady to come over and inspect the house and for us to turn in the keys, get our deposit back, etc. So she comes in, she walks around the house, and she goes, the house looks great. So... You know, good, good, good. When do we get our deposit back? And she said this. I never give deposits back. And I kind of protested, and in so many words, she basically said, take me to court. 
had the upper hand because it wouldn't be worth hiring an attorney. It wouldn't even really be worth my time to go to small claims court. I was basically at her mercy. She knew it. I'll be honest with you. I had pretty hard feelings against that lady for a long time. Okay, I still have hard feelings. <laughs> Actually, she passed away a few years ago. How do I know that? I didn't like her and I kept up with things. Karma. <laughs> Consumption. 
that the resources God gives you are only meant for you. If it comes to me, then it must be for me. I can do whatever I want with it. And James says, nope. That's not how it works in God's economy. Just because you have it doesn't mean it's for you. And then there's this kind of interesting phrase here. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. At first glance, you're like, what? What does this have to do with anything? So back in ancient times, New Testament times, you've heard this, the, the phrase, the fatted calf. If there was a celebration or something on the horizon, they might take an animal, a calf, and they would fatten it up, probably put it in a special pin, maybe give it a, a special diet, and they were fattening it up for a day of celebration. Now, obviously, probably only the wealthy could do that because they were the ones with the, with the, with the animals. Now, when you and I get ready to celebrate something, we've just come out of Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. We go down to the local grocery store. We buy a turkey or a ham or a pot roast or whatever it is. If somebody calls us the day before and say they're coming and we need more, we can go buy another ham or turkey or whatever it is. We can be last-minute preparers. But in New Testament times, the only things that would hold over so that wouldn't spoil would be grain and wine. And, of course, the wealthy had meat and they had milk. But everybody else, it was just grain and wine. And so when there was a celebration coming, they had a plan way out in advance for what they were going to do. They had to think ahead. So they would fatten a calf. And it's interesting what he's doing here. It's saying, you rich people, you, got, you think you got it all figured out because you're planning way ahead, fattening your calf for the day of celebration. But really, you're just fattening yourself because at the end of the day, all this stuff that you have accumulated is actually going to be an embarrassment to yourself. Here's something really fascinating from history. In 62 AD, James, the guy we're talking about, was assassinated by the high priest in Jerusalem. He was assassinated between Roman governors. You may remember Jerusalem, Israel's under occupation by the Romans. And there was a gap between two governors. One had left, the other hadn't arrived yet. Because if the high priest wouldn't have been able to do this if the Roman authorities would have been here because they weren't allowed to put anybody to death. Only a Roman governor could order an execution. But he was able to assassinate James because there's this gap. And he assassinates James because he was tired of James telling everybody about his brother Jesus and about Christianity. Now remember James, when he writes this book, he's living in Jerusalem. Lots of people in Galilee, Judea, this area around Jerusalem are going to read it. It was written early 50s, 50s AD. Seven years later, after his death, all these people that would have read what James had to say, what we just read, would have been surrounded by Roman legions as the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem. So all the people in Judea, Galilee, Jerusalem, all these people and all their stuff would have been surrounded by Roman legions. 
Many of them died of starvation during the siege. Many of them were killed by these roving bands of, of just mobs that would just come through and murder people. Many of them were taken into slavery. And at the end of the day, every single one of them was either killed or expelled. And you know what happened to all their stuff? The Romans took it. All of it. Did James know this was going to happen? From a historical standpoint, I don't think he did. I don't, I don't think he knew these specific circumstances. But I did think he knew this. He knew what would happen to them is the same that will eventually happen to all of us. We can't take our stuff with us. It will become someone else's. One day our lives will be over and what we do with our stuff will tell volumes, or what we have done with our stuff will tell volumes about us. So practically speaking this morning, what do we do with this kind of message about living generously? Let me just give you three thoughts. Number one, Practice percentage giving. Set a percentage of your, of your income that you're going to give away. Old Testament talks about 10% as being a good rule of thumb. New Testament doesn't really kind of specify. That's not a hard and fast rule. You know, maybe for you it would be 12%. Maybe for you it would be 8%. But practice percentage giving. Because if you don't, what usually happens is just whatever's left at the end of the month. And we all know that tends not to be very much. Secondly, give to more than just the church. If you think this message was just about tithing to Burning Bush Baptist Church, you have totally missed the point. This is about living generously. This is about practicing a lifestyle of generosity. Yes, I think the Bible, I know the Bible teaches that you should give first to the church. But we also, if we practice a lifestyle of generosity, we will give to all these great organizations, many Christian organizations, some not, but that are doing wonderful things outside the church. These organizations that are changing people's stories, you know, foster, organ, you know, foster kid organizations, passion, uh, compassion kids, all those types of things. Those organizations are changing the stories of people's lives. But it takes resources for them to do what they do. And then remember this. God has made you the manager of the resources that he has given you. And with his guidance, you have a wonderful opportunity to change individual stories change people's lives to make a difference in this world with the resources that God has blessed you with. As we said in the beginning, live generously because what you are holding is molded. You should pray with me.